Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest, live from Vancouver edition. It's Wednesday, November 20th, 2019. On today's show, The Irishman is an American crime epic from the director Martin Scorsese. It stars Robert De Niro as a mob heavy and Al Pacino as the legendary American labor leader Jimmy Hoffa. And then... The beloved Canadian sitcom Schitt's Creek is finally getting its proper due in our parts uh, from critics, audiences, and award shows alike. Its sixth and final season is coming out in January. We discuss, or maybe I'll just roll around on the stage floor and purr like a kitten. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't poker face. I love that show so goddamn much. And finally, Orwellian, creepy, intrusive, and presumably extremely profitable, targeted advertising, however, may be in trouble thanks to an impending California law. It's set to take effect in early 2020. We talk about the creepiness, the law, and the implications of being followed everywhere you go. Joining me today is Julia Turner, who is the deputy managing editor of the Los Angeles Times. Hey, Julia. Hello, hello. That's not blonde Julia Turner to you. And uh, Dana Stevens, who, of course, is the film critic for uh, Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hey. Steve, do you know that I was blonde? That I was blonde until I was 20? Born blonde? Oh, born blonde. Yeah. But not bottle blonde. I mean, uh, born blonde, I have a toe-headed kid who's in the process of turning brunette. brunette. Yeah, so it's not... I didn't blow my mind with that one, but it's... (laughs) But Bob, if you showed up as a bottle blonde, my universe is over. I mean, I already moved to L.A. <laughs> Could happen. Okay. All right. Well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, Jimmy Hoffa was the head of the Teamsters and thereby the most powerful labor official in the United States. He disappeared infamously forever and quite mysteriously in 1975, and his presumed murder has never been solved, even though teams of FBI agents, police, investigative journalists, and various obsessive and cranks have been on the case ever since. The Irishman, directed by Martin Scorsese, tells the life story of one Frank Sheeran, who worked his way up from nobody truck driver and into the upper ranks of the Pennsylvania mob, and eventually to become the body man for Jimmy Hoffa. In many ways, at least in the telling here, he became his closest and most desperately conflicted companion. This movie is a three hours plus 
epic, really. It is saturated in elegy, and it reunites the major Scorsese repertory players, notably De Niro and Joe Pesci and Harvey Keitel, while adding Al Pacino to the mix as Hoffa. It's a story of homosocial tenderness and trust, but also of viciously divided loyalties. Let's listen to a clip. Let me put McGee on the phone. Hello? Hey, my friend, how are you? Listen, I got that kid I was talking to you about here. I'm going to put him on the phone let you talk to him, okay? Right. Hello? Is that Frank? Yes. Hi, Frank. This is Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah, yeah. Glad to meet you. Well, glad to meet you, too, even if it's over the phone. I heard you paint houses. Yes, yes, sir, I, I do. I do, and I, uh, I also do my own carpentry. Glad to hear that. I understand you're a brother of mine. Yes, sir. Local 107 since 1947. Yeah. You know, uh, our friend speaks very highly of you. Thank you. He's not an easy man to please. Well, I do my best. Uh, Okay, before, Dana, we dig in, I should say that I hear you paint houses is supposedly, according to this movie and the book it's based on, mob slang for carrying out hits and then carpentry is for disposing of the body, just to give you a little, a couple of hints there. Um, Dana, this is a a self-consciously huge picture. It is very long. Um, It is so valedictory in tone, it would shock me if Martin Scorsese ever made another gangster picture. To me, it seems so self-consciously like a capstone uh, and an old master's maybe farewell, really, to to the genre, at Mm -hmm. least, that he's probably most associated with fairly or unfairly. What did you make of this movie? I I loved it, absolutely loved this movie, and was somewhat surprised by my love for it because it sort of seemed like after Silence, his last movie, you know, completely departing from the the world of the mob and taking place in 17th century Japan with these Portuguese missionaries. Did people see Silence here? Did anybody see Silence? Right? I mean, that's a great movie, great Martin Scorsese movie, and it feels like a valedictory movie as well. It feels like that he's, you know, talking about faith and, you know, brotherhood and so many of the things that have been his themes throughout his career – and it seemed to me, I didn't want it to be, but it seemed like that could be the end of Martin Scorsese's filmmaking career. So the idea that then he was going to go back to the mob material after that sort of seemed to me like, do we need this again? And to my surprise, I just was completely blown away by this and felt that he explored that material in a completely different register than anything he'd done before. And uh, I know nobody in Canada has had the chance to see this yet. It's going to be coming in a couple weeks, I think, right? And then it's coming to Netflix worldwide in, in December. Right. Um, but... To me, this is sort of, this is like a Goodfellas reprise, you know, with an incredibly melancholy twist. There's so much in here that echoes Goodfellas very directly. It's the story of someone from outside the mob getting drawn in to the life. It takes place over this long period. You kind of, you know, witness the walls closing in on this person and their moral corruption. And there's a lot of direct echoes of Goodfellas that I won't give away because I'll let you see them for yourself when you see the movie. But Unlike Goodfellas, which has this very youthful, driving, manic, great cocaine-fueled kind of energy, this movie is really, really slow in the best sense. It's like slow cinema, the way you talk about, you know, slow food or something like that. It just (laughs) feels to me like... um, not that the story is proceeding slowly because there's a hell of a lot that happens during it, right? There's a lot of action. There's a lot of laughs. You don't hear them in that scene, but the dialogue, which is by Stephen Zaley. And the, there's a lot of decades. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of different a lot of faces. Decades. Jumping around time-wise. But 
it and and I'm not going to say that it zips by the three plus hours of this movie, but it is in some ways a movie about the experience of duration. It's about aging. The last third of it is all about growing old and really almost leaves behind the gangster story in a way and is just about what it means to outlive, you know, whether because of violence or just because of illness to outlive so many of your contemporaries as Frank Sheeran does. And uh, by the end, I just felt like it was almost a, a Beckett play or something. Like it was reaching for this, you know, this very profound meditation on uh, on what it means to be alive and to age and to die and uh, what it means to forgive and be forgiven, if that's possible when you've sinned in the way that the people in this movie have. Uh, it just felt like it was... It was a filmmaker at the top of his game and not at all sort of, you know, um, an old man indulging mm-hmm. his right. his desires. Also right. to see De Niro and Pacino acting together, which, you know, they did in Heat, of course, in Michael Mann's Heat. But they really only have one substantial scene together in that movie. And in this movie, I mean, you just see them striking sparks off each other for hours and hours. And it just seems like all of these actors, including Joe Pesci, who you saw up there, are are also at the top of their games and exploring new parts of their personas. This is not the Joe Pesci of Goodfellas. It's a very, very different character. And I would almost say that Pesci is maybe the, the acting high point of the whole movie. But yeah, I, I absolutely loved it. Uh, Julia, you have a kind of marvelous cat just ate the canary look on your face. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't wait to hear what you're thinking, but I I want to set up this question a little bit and then you can bat it away like it never existed. But it's a very, I agree with Dana in this regard, it's a very, very personal act of uh, movie making. It's obviously a statement by Scorsese, not only about the mob, but about, and the characters therein, but, um, um, but about his own career and his own relationship to cinema and human beings. Um, at the same time, it's also about a very huge episode in American history. Like, what happened to Jimmy Hoffa is not just the stuff of late-night comedians. Hoffa was a central and historically important history in the labor movement in America, the relationship between crime and the labor uh, movement, and uh, and the American corporation, and the distribution of wealth in America. I mean, it's it, the movie goes into these things. I'm very curious to hear how you think Scorsese reconciled these two different things in this film. That's such an interesting question. I mean, the the underlying book, uh, the biography of Frank Sheeran, uh, that the, that this movie is sort of based on, has been pretty widely discredited or at least challenged. There are a number of very serious challenges to the idea that this Frank Sheeran character actually did uh, murder all of the people he professes to have whose houses he professes to have painted. Um, (laughs) And uh, so with that as the underlying through line, to me, even though those questions are so interesting and the idea of power and how labor, which is advocating for the downtrodden and these sort of underworld power forces and the up front and center corporate and political powerful forces are all intersecting, that's rich terrain. I don't think this movie is super interested in those questions, actually. It's all just seen incredibly richly, evocatively detailed scene work, and it creates the tableau in which we get to see, I agree, Dana, absolutely extraordinary performances. I mean, that that scene we just watched is actually when Al Pacino's character and Frank De Niro's characters first meet, as you could see. And my favorite part of it is just that hello, like he sounds like a little boy, yeah. that like shy, timid hello, like it's like you're Robert De Niro. What are you, what are you talking like that for? Um, and, you know, watching them really engage, especially in these long scenes where they have plenty of time to go back and forth has its pleasures. 
However, I'm not sure you guys have noticed, but over the years, sometimes I play the Philistine on this show. I mean, it's like, it's, it's a stretch. I mostly do it to just help with the dynamic, but it's a role I feel I have a certain responsibility to. <laughs> this movie is so long! <laughs> like, it's so long. And the editor and me in general, when people get too big to edit, is just like, nobody is too big to edit. You got to think about your audience and what it feels like to sit in a chair for a really long time. And and I, I will say that this is not indulgently or thoughtlessly long. Like, it is intentionally long. It is this meditation. It is this kind of echo piece to Goodfellas and and sort of what is all the hype and drive and ambition and social cachet that leads you to become a hitman for the mob leave you with when you're just an old man decades later and everybody is dead in part because you killed some of them. Um, like, <laughs> that is an interesting intellectual question. The movie is incredibly skillful. But I was dying to get out of the theater by the end of it, even though, you know, and like the, the I, I saw it at the Regency with one of these big old movie houses in L.A. And it was not sold out. I mean, they made like a lot of noise when they just opened it. So we should also note this is a Netflix movie. Ne- Netflix spent tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars making it. Martin 140 Scors- million, I think. Yeah. Martin Scorsese Easily. has t- said that it's not a movie that he could have gotten made. Uh, really without Netflix, certainly at this length, certainly with this like long shaggy coda and, uh, and actually said that, that Joe Pesci was, was reluctant to sign on until Netflix signed on, not because he was in it for the money, but just the comforts of making a well-funded movie versus the deprivations of making a poorly funded one (laughs) or like hard on you when you're old, which I thought was like just nicely practical. He wants some good craft service. I mean, is <laughs> yeah, that so much to a, a comfortable trailer with heating and air conditioning. It's like, yeah, that that seems very logical, Mr. Pesci. Um, anyway, I don't know. I, 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 I'm glad this movie exists, but I did, I saw Dana the day afterwards, uh, after I saw it and I was like, ugh, it just reminded me of what was that long monk movie? And she's like, oh, that movie was so beautiful. And I was like, it was also so long. <laughs> like, I don't know. My honest response is, I admire your work, but your movie was quite long, sir. <laughs> <laughs> um, so listen, I know that draping ultraviolence and mythic grandeur is your jam, Dana. Um, but <laughs> this movie does not drape violence and mythic grandeur. I have to jump in and say that. It is to say that this movie glamorizes violence well, is to misread it completely. Uh, okay. Well, uh, let it, let's let him misread it first. <laughs> okay, misread away. <laughs> we are talking about the Irishman, correct? <laughs> The parts of this movie did not align for me, and uh, there was one big misalignment and then several derivative ones. So the big one is as follows. The, the movie, substantively, the story that it tells is, uh, and here the length works to its benefit, is very long, but it gives you the sense of a life being lived over its many, many stages and integrated and unintegrated parts, which I think is remarkable. But substantively, it's about those lives coming to nothing. I mean, I think that that is actually is put in your face a number of times by a tick that Scorsese uses, which is at various moments, a somewhat secondary character will appear and say and do something and they'll have an amazing amount of macho swagger to them and then Scorsese will freeze frame him and describe how ignominiously the person was killed in public in a mob hit. Like, And he's saying like that's the contrast between that moment of testosterone, testosterone-up self-possession contrasts with this totally... Uh, inglorious uh, end to this human life. Um, And uh, on the other hand, the movie is very self-consciously personal 
a personal act of filmmaking about how this filmmaker's whole life has been cumulatively magnificent and how his relationship to these actors has been cumulatively and collectively magnificent. And I thought these two things did not go together. I felt like I was watching the movie aesthetically was like an afternoon at the museum, right? It's like these kind of museum piece actors trotting out their kind of old master greatest hits in a way. And I felt like the story was also about this kind of nihilism that this violence comes to. And then the other thing, like derivatively and on a sort of smaller scale, I thought Pesci's performance is is so beautiful, so feathery, so tender, so delicate. It's it's a wonderful performance. It has not been overhyped at all. But his character is not the most interesting character in a way. The most interesting character actually is Hoffa because Hoffa, to my mind, is balancing the most horribly unbalanced aspects, right, of his own personal history and history, his obligation. Hoffa is essentially in this movie depicted as someone who knows he has to deal with the mafia. The mafia has just penetrated his business trucking and the American Union uh, labor movement too deeply not to be dealt with. At the same time, he still has ideals, pragmatic and, and very high ideals about what working people are owed. And so it's a total modus vivendi that he's cut you know, with, uh, with the mafia. So the most interesting character is Pacino, but Pacino's scenery chewing in a way that's pointed up by how subtle Pesci's performance is, and yet the movie's sort of focused on Sheeran, who to me is an utterly boring character. I don't find Sheeran intrinsically interesting at all. He's just kind of a goon with no... You sense that in real life he was a goon with no powers of introspection, and that he's just kind of you know, babbling in a mythomaniacal way towards the end of his life. And so I was sort of waiting for these elements to cohere in a way. The one human story in the whole movie... I found interesting is, can you guess it? There's one that's actually really quite touching and and does bring the parts of the movie together a little bit. I feel like you've named all the characters already. <laughs> is it the Anna, pa- the Anna Paquin character? Yeah. No, yeah I wanted that. to talk about that and ask talk you guys about, about that. that because among the divided critical response to this movie, in general, it's been pretty much adored by a lot of critics, but there has been something of a feminist backlash of people saying that there's no major female character in the movie, which is somewhat true, except that Anna Paquin's character, the daughter of Frank Sheeran, Robert De Niro's character, who you know is slowly alienated from her father by figuring out the horrible thing that he does for a living. Um, she only gets, I think people have counted, <laughs> film critics have counted, I think she gets 10 lines in the movie or something like yeah. that. But they're absolutely, absolutely crucial lines and they're really the only moment that you know De Niro has to face, his character has to face up to his own agency, right? Oh. The choices that he's made. Yeah, but she's like the opposite of a manic pixie dream girl. She's like a like a depressive, somber conscience <laughs> ghost yeah. or something. <laughs> like it... it, it <laughs> So she, she she doesn't like she's a prop she's not a character I I don't know about that I guess I guess oh to me God. to me it sort of seemed I just I love it when JT goes yard <laughs> you know you're sort of humming along like spray hitting here and there I mean I don't like sports metaphors in general but that was like a 500 foot bomb right there <laughs> thank you sir I mean, Stephen, you just said that that's the one relationship that moves you in yeah. the movie, the Anna Paquin, Robert De Niro. So do you have a feeling, why why wasn't her character given more space and more lines? I mean, she's there for sort of negative purposes to point up and reflect back to Sheeran his moral failure, like which his own powers of introspection wouldn't hand him this realization on their own. So she's there to be the daughter who sees who he is, sees him for who he is, the one person in the world who withdraws from him an affection that he craves. And I thought that that was, that was it's terrible that they deprived her of uh, more speaking lines, but as a 
thematic uh, coloring for the movie, I think it really worked. I don't think it's terrible that she was deprived of more speaking lines. I yeah. think she has a, a, a crucial part in the movie and right. that it's part of what that movie is about, that it's a world of men. It's a world of violent, powerful yeah. men who exclude women from every, all of the important decisions of their lives, like the last shot of The Godfather, right, with Diane Keaton's face getting shut out. And we've left out, I'm sorry, we've left out one thing, which is that she sees the important part of her part isn't just that she doesn't give um, you know filial affection to the De Niro character to Sheeran, it's that she does give it to Hoffa, right? It's that's the movie's other recognition that Hoffa is kind of a real human being, right? Like he's got a kind of warmth and sense of personal mission that extends beyond himself and his own macho, you know, um, apotheosis. And so their relationship is actually quite beautiful and tender. I mean, she's reaching out to him as the father that she wished she had. And I think he's, he has no children, right? And he quite loves her. And anyway, I thought that that was, that was quite well realized. I agree. That's, that's yeah. one of the many good parts of this very good movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I, I will say, to argue against myself, I do think that part of the point is that he's not that interesting. It's, like, it's, not, yeah. it's, it's sort of rather than the glitz and glamour and adrenaline and cocaine of like the mob, wasn't it fun? We were so evil and powerful and ah, we really controlled everything. It's like, and this is where I actually think the labor theme does come in. It's not really about the history of Jimmy Hoffa, but it's like, what's a hitman? A worker. He's right. a working man. He's got oh, yeah. bosses. Yeah. At one point he has one boss. You know, I think part of the relationship with the daughter with Hoffa is, is at this point he's working for Hoffa and she's like, oh, maybe my dad is respectable. Maybe everything I suspect you know, he works for this guy who's like an American hero. Maybe it's okay. You know, I think that's part of what we're supposed to understand there. But I think this is where it comes back around to being like the Long Monk movie, um, which is that he's <laughs> he's reflecting at the end of his life on what the work of his life was and what that amounted to and what that turned him into. And that it's, it's just very personal for being so historic right. and epic in scope. And I mean, I don't really want to see it again, but there is a part of me that wants to see... Goodfellas and then see it and then compare, you know, it, Casino, it, it's yeah. like a, it's, it's not long because it's not thoughtful. It's, it's an incredibly dense and interesting text. I just, my like legs hurt by the end. <laughs> <laughs> one before we close out, one more question about it because this was something that was talked about a lot in the early festival previews of this movie, but that now that it's out, nobody seems to be bothered by it, which is the digital de-aging technique that, that Scorsese used. So part of why this cost $140 million <laughs> is that he's rendering these, these three characters at all different ages and there's all these really complicated nested flashbacks within flashbacks and the temporal structure kind of keeps de-aging them. Right. And uh, it was something that I found for the maybe the first 20 minutes of the movie I had to get used to like why is he suddenly not wrinkly and there's a slight obviously when someone's been CGI yeah. there's a slight um, uncanniness Uncanny, to yeah. their flesh but I thought it was so well done that by well into the first hour I had forgotten about it what mm -hmm. about y'all uh, two words Polar Express <laughs> it did not look like no that. way I like cannot stand those movies this was so good I mean this was as good as the Captain Marvel one where I was like Samuel L. Jackson looks so good in this movie does <laughs> <laughs> he had work <laughs> no I just like I, I, this just seems like technology that works I don't know God, I, I right. did not well, find it uncanny at all I don't know if you know this but sometimes I play the doubting curmudgeon on the show <laughs> what's the what am I the I'm the doubting something 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 what was your home run oh, uh, you'll remember. never recreate it alright <laughs> the movie's The Irishman you will get to see it soon either here in the Couve or uh, maybe on Netflix and uh, coming to a theater near you and a laptop definitely alright let's uh, let's move on are we ready Canada <laughs> starting to slip into a De Niro thing here. 
You did good, Canada. <laughs> Schitt's Creek is a Canadian sitcom created by and starring the father-son duo of Eugene and Daniel Levy. I have to just say right here, I was the kid who in 1978 stayed up till one in the morning to watch SCTV. On, yeah. On WOR Channel 9, and to think that, I mean, it's, what is that, 40 plus years or 40 years later, yeah, 40 plus years later that Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara, I mean, ah, oh, it's just beautiful. It really is. Anyway, the show tells the story of the Rose family who lost their immense fortune to a fraudulent accountant. Their one remaining asset is the aptly named town of Schitt's Creek, the sad sack municipality that they purchased outright and as a joke back in the 1990s and where they now are forced to remake their lives from scratch as newly initiated members of the 99% the show stars the two Levies as well as Catherine O'Hara, who should win the Nobel Prize <laughs> for that performance. Uh, she is the Rose Matriarch Moira and uh, Annie Murphy as their spoiled daughter Alexis. Let's listen to a clip. Alexis, what the hell is the matter with you? <sighs> okay. Stavros is flying in to get me and I'm going to go live with him for a little bit. Well, that is not happening. And I am appalled that my baby girl has turned into a selfish, duplicitous whore. Oh, hello. Hi. I'm Twyla. I'll be your waitress today. Anyway, I read about you guys and everything you've gone through. It sounds super crappy. Super crappy. I had a second cousin in Elmdale who did telemarketing. He made a ton of money. Turns out his entire business was illegal and he lost everything. Hmm. Not quite the same. Yeah, no, he went to prison, which is terrible, but but he is learning Spanish. Uh, no mas le duele. I think it means stop, it hurts. Oh, wonderful anecdote. Could you give us a moment, please? Whenever you're ready. I'm spread over here. I forbid you to abandon our family. I am a grown woman, mother. This is the act of a spoiled child. I think it's unforgivable. I think that you're just super jealous because I'm getting out of here. Also, you have a big thing of dandruff on your eyebrow. Do that. Dan, stop. Stop. The world is falling apart around us, John, and I'm dying inside. Well, I'm feeling a little queasy myself. Oh, brisket. <laughs> oh, my God. Do we have to stop playing the clip? Let's just... I swear to God, if we all just are patient, we can get through season five tonight, I'm sure. Um... Julia, the peg here is the final season of the show, sadly, is fourth, well, wonderfully and sadly, is forthcoming January 7th on Pop TV. But really, I think for us as Americans, it's more that a kind of critical mass has happened with this show. So many people came to me saying exactly the same thing about it. They're like, get beyond the super broad title, get beyond the yada yada of the premise. Um, You're not going to laugh out loud or belly laugh a lot, and it's... Not exactly deep or whatever, but it is the best fucking show you've ever seen. They can't, it's like impossible to really articulate its charms, but now we're going to do it. Um, <laughs> what'd you make of this show? Well, we also have to stipulate for the audience that, so sometimes we make the wrong call and we skip a show in its first season and then it goes on and goes on and builds into something that, that needs to be reckoned with as a cultural force. Um, but, you know, when there's a first season of a show and we've watched six, seven, eight episodes, we've watched half of it, we were like, I guess we'll do Shit's Creek in Canada. And then we're like, oh, wait, we need to watch five seasons of television. <laughs> Steve, as you can tell, has fallen utterly down the rabbit hole. Dana and I have watched a number of episodes, but not all of them. Um, and I 
really liked it, but also was watching it in this funny way where I like watched the early season, which elicited like an incredibly condescending review from the New York Times. And then I watched some like very beautiful, I felt like I was sort of fast forwarding through these people's lives. Um, But the, the thing that struck me the most about this show and my main uh, point of analysis for it would be, this is Gilmore Girls Above the Border, but they talk funny instead of fast. Um, <laughs> like they, it's like the whole point is to be in a in like this little intimate community, and then these characters pop up, and they have trades, and they, you know, you know, they're, they're, and then you're focused on these intimate relationships that are actually quite sincere among, like, underneath the overt silliness and kind of, uh, you know artificiality of the premise like, what does it even mean to own a town by the way do they ever explain that like the whole conceit never is that they're so rich and then everything gets taken away because their accountant screwed them over and but they own a town where they have no clout and can do and if nothing. you own a town why do you then get to go live in a motel in that <laughs> like town? which presumably you still have to pay for you have like to hotel you are to motel. really placing your focus in the wrong place okay. right now correct me Anyway, it just, I, I really, I, I loved the Gilmore Girls. I mean, it had its flaws and let's not talk about the final seasons, but you know, the, the notion of a place where sincere people can sincerely regard each other and we can tell sincere stories, it's actually kind of hard to find that. And one way to do it is to put them in a funny little town and give them like amusing shopkeepers, apparently. And this is this decade's version of that. And it's wonderful. Thankfully, I've got a 15 minute monologue on the virtues of this TV show (laughs) fully prepped, but Dana, I guess you get a turn here first. <laughs> I mean, the first thing I want to say is just this this having this few days with Steve and traveling with him and seeing how in love with Shit's Creek he is has been so endearing. <laughs> and uh, I feel like usually when we talk about a show, there's always one of us who's seen more than the other, right? Especially when we have this problem that Julia mentioned that it's been going on for five seasons. So we had 66 episodes to catch up with. And I just love seeing Steve completely throw himself into it and just become this evangelist. All he wanted to do was disappear into his room with his headphones and watch more Shit's Creek. So, <laughs> so I almost feel like I'm not qualified to speak of it, having seen the entire first season and then like Julia dipped here and there into some of the more famous episodes from later on. But one thing I wanted to touch on was this question of, um, sincerity or earnestness versus not and how this show navigates that because I feel like it's very different from Gilmore Girls in the sense that at least in the first season like that clip that we just saw is from it's really kind of uh, it's very not nice. It's, it's, it's more in the tradition of uh, lots of shows that we've talked about lately. The sitcom about horrible people, You're the Worst, was one, right? What are some other... Well, Succession is kind of an example. Yeah, of sort of, of and derived dramatic. from Larry Sanders, this kind of very nasty Right, like sniping. rich, horrible people that you know yeah, sort hateful. of enjoy their awfulness yeah. to each other. That is an element, especially in the first season of this show, and the contrast between them and the not necessarily that much nicer, but, but much more... Um, uh, at least externally sort of sweet and uh, conventional occupants, residents of the town. Um, but that all starts to get delighted and the two things start to mingle in interesting ways in the, in the later seasons. And um, without ever uh, wearing its heart on its sleeve or having a, a sort of a corny homecoming moment, the tone just shifts so, so radically over the course of several seasons so that by the time, for example, you get to the relationship between David, the Daniel Levy character, and Patrick, who becomes his boyfriend in season three, I think. Yeah, um, towards the end of season three. It's yeah. just, it's like one of the great gay love stories I've ever seen on TV. Oh it's fantastic. God, it's it's and, so beautiful, uh, yeah. Um, 
I'm mixing up Daniel and David now, but the real guy is Daniel, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Daniel Levy has said that he wanted to write that story, the the storyline between between his character and Patrick, who becomes his boyfriend, for that reason, that he was tired of seeing gay relationships on TV that were yeah. always about, you know, struggle or homophobia or AIDS or tragedy. Yeah. And he wanted to to write a love story that worked between two men and just the degree to which the show achieves that. But not just that. I mean, just the the, the way that that very set of family relationships that you see so dysfunctional in the first season becomes something that's equally insane, equally kind of um, absurd and chaotic, but very loving by the second or third season. Oh, absolutely. I, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. Okay, well, it's not going to it's not going to go back to you for another five or ten minutes. It starts here, goes all the way here, and doesn't oh, well, end. Okay, okay, wait. There. The one okay, point I did right. want to make. Since you pointed that out, it's just, I actually don't think it's difficult just to do that on a sitcom with a love story if it's a gay love story. Like, just making a love story where they love each other Mm -hmm. and that's the end of it. Mm -hmm. And and you just have plot based on like them loving each other. It's so hard for TV to do that. Honestly, people, oh, they like misread a text and then they're so anxious and uh, they break up for a season and then they come back, you know, the like, the obstacle, like, once you, if you get a couple together, in the first season and then you have to keep prying them apart and back and forth. You know, it just right. feels like they just even for any romance on a TV show, that approach is novel and you're really right. well you're done. Right. And there is some romantic angst, especially the Alexis character has some, you know, texting dramas and things yes. like that. But the central love that this is built around, of course, is, is a uh, Johnny and Moira. Right. And, uh, and their relationship yeah. is also fantastic. I love that scene in the first season where their kids through the thin hotel room walls, hear them having sex. And it's this horrifying th- the idea that their parents are having sex, but we have no problem with it at all. Like I completely understand the love those two characters have for each other. Yeah. Well, so <laughs> here he goes. I, I I so badly want to write about this show, and when I say write about, what I mean is like a multi-volume leather-bound <laughs> set that you can put up on your shelf and then kind of pass it along along to your children and grandchildren. Um, I've been texting a friend of mine who's also watched the show with my favorite lines as they come up, and he finally. He finally uh, texted me back and said, I'm imagining you in the downstairs cave, which is where, in fact, I record this show up in my house in Ghent, New York. I imagine you in that downstairs cave, 25 pounds heavier, surrounded by empty Popeye's boxes and Mountain Dew, (laughs) hitting next episode before the end credits pop on. (laughs) I've been lost to this show for the last, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know, a week, two weeks, three weeks, whatever it is. Um, first and foremost, I want to say, as the, as the author myself of a non-existent book, I love the show's commitment to non-existent books. Every time a character is reading a book, it looks so plausibly like a real book that actually exists, but it's always a made-up title. Um, and you, there are lists on Reddit of um, non-existent reading lists from Schitt's Creek. Um, <laughs> Okay, so it's good for the usual TV reasons, right? It's got an ensemble cast that keeps getting better and better and going deeper and deeper with their characters. Catherine O'Hara is just... David! I mean, just the voice alone, the voice work she's doing alone is amazing. Um, But my thesis is the show is not just good, it's beautiful. Um, And it's beautiful because of the arc that the whole show takes, which is, to my mind, is as meticulously pre-planned as Breaking Bad was, right? Because it's about people who begin as caricatures, and they're caricatures for a very specific social and political reason, which is they have removed themselves from the community of humankind by being stupid. 
stupidly rich. And it's about how that has turned them into moral monsters and a quarter inch deep uh, human beings in spite of themselves. But because the show is Canadian and it's not cruel and it doesn't wallow in cruelty and satire, it then humanizes and humanizes and humanizes them. And it's true that the transformation they go through is radical, but it's also done very slowly and very lovingly and very subtly and very believably. And it's an amazing thing to watch. Um, I think that the that the show has a it, the show is just delightful. So I'm now going to lard it up with words that will make it sound like homework. But it's just, its essence is that it is funny, sweethearted, very true, and just beautifully realized comedy throughout. But the other thing I'll say is that it makes a point over and over again, which I find fascinating and actually quite subtle, which is that. Um, One of the ways in which these people have monstrously misparented their children is that they've totally dissociated sweat from income, right? I mean, the the show is actually quite explicit about this. There are all these moments where they have no sense that money is rooted in people's pain and sacrifice and suffering, which is what it is to raise a rich kid, right? And the reassociation of these two things happens over and over again. The Alexa storyline when she has to go get a job with Ted and her inability to understand this relationship between work and reward and then David's story throughout is like deeply about this reassociation. I mean, he goes to work in the blouse barn. He realizes what that means. Mm -hmm. He becomes entrepreneurial. I mean, it's a funnily beautiful and tender look about how capitalism, when it works, humanizes us. And when it doesn't work, it radically dehumanizes us. And it's so in control of that message. So um, in sum, (laughs) (laughs) this is a beautiful show, finally, because it's about being given a second bite at life's apple. Right? I mean, that's why it's so moving. It's like these people were would have lived their whole lives like these idiot baubles, you know, in their own self-constructed glass casing. And instead, they're forced to rejoin the community of humankind and become real to themselves and to their own unit, you know, their own nuclear unit. And I just think it's so sensitively done. And it's funny as fuck. I just... <laughs> If you haven't seen it, you all have. But if you're listening to my voice now, in Copenhagen, perhaps, or (laughs) John, I just want to be, like, I've never wanted to really be a drag queen, but I want to be Moira so badly now. (laughs) If you're listening to my voice in Berlin, or perhaps Britannia, um... It's really funny. It's really fucking funny. So don't take my like Hegelian dialectic, you know, lard sauce as <laughs> indicative of how fun it is just to watch the show. I'm done with my monologue. <laughs> I guess. I- are we supposed to just let you end it? I don't know. Like, what do I do now? Like, do. skulk off? Do a little touchdown dance? I Well, I just have one question, though, which is, I feel like everybody in the town... I, one thing that strikes me in the early episodes, I mean, they are ridiculous, and they're made ridiculous by their wealth and their disassociation from normalcy, but, like, everyone in the town is weird, and some of them are jerks, too, and they're... Right of nice to each other at the beginning even when they're calling each other whores there is a sort of un, like I don't know I, I mean I, I I have no power to argue with you because of your professed devotion to this text so I feel like I'm about to lose this argument but it seems 
mixed up at the beginning. Like, it's not like they go to this pastoral land where people understand the value of humanity and labor. It's like they go to, no. they're a bunch of weirdos and they go meet a bunch of weirdos. But I don't think right. that contradicts, like, I don't think that contradicts like, your argument. I don't think it's not schematically allegorical. Also, by the way, you're very familiar with the show, I take it, many of you. The way Bob makes his entrance, that walk, where did that come from? It's just comic genius. I, I love the show too much. I like I've sunk this segment with my love. What I love most about our show is when I go on a monologue and I'm recording in my basement, I got the earmuffs on or whatever. I can't see anyone's facial expression. I get ahead of steam and then I stop. And I, it's true, I just don't know what I expect, but there's this abominating silence often. <laughs> I wouldn't say often. <laughs> okay, all right. I'm glad you got to experience it. It's not just in my head. Should we crawl out of the segment or just commit to watching the whole thing? That's, it's only 190,000 hours of programming. Well, and one last thing I wanted to just practical tip to people who, like me, have been hearing about it for years but thought, oh, it's on this weird network that I don't want to subscribe to. It's on Netflix now, right? Yeah, yeah. I, yes, it is. I, I don't know if the new season is going to be. I think it has to wait to drop on I don't think so. There. I think it may have, have to But, um, but yeah, if you, ha- if you were putting off seeing this because you thought, oh, I have to figure out what the pop network is somehow, you don't have to figure that out anymore. All right. Well, the show is Schitt's Creek. It's the best thing of all time. I love it so much. <laughs> I just can't. I have no power. I, mean, I will. I'll roll around on the stage and purr. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, moving on. <laughs> it's been said that we are living in an age of surveillance capitalism. Oh, that will get us back to sobriety quickly, I think. <laughs> And therefore, under the thumb of an Orwellian super eye, the digital trackers not only follow us around the internet, but also, I mean, this is even creepier, uh, in our brick and mortar lives and out in the world, um, while even more profitably, algorithms predict what we will do next. What we browse, linger on, return to, what we watch, listen to, where we go, what we spend, who we interact with, where we live, all of it perpetually monitored, but also more saliently, perpetually monetized. Is this possibly about to change? That's one peg for the segment. There's something called the California Consumer Privacy Act. It's coming in 2020. Uh, we can get there or not get there, Julia, as we see fit. But um, And you know that I love a good moral panic. <laughs> Better than anyone and anything that empowers the doom and gloomsayers, I'm all for it. But I wonder if we're in the realm of of, uh, overreaction here or underreaction. Where do you come out? (laughs) I'm going to start somewhere else. Uh, but but somewhere adjacent. So I think part of our idea for this segment, which is to talk about the creepy ads that follow you around the internet and whether they're going to keep following you around the internet and sort of the ability of huge companies to gather data about us and then use that data to make money off of us, uh, began when I had an unusual experience a couple of nights ago where I was looking at Instagram and I was looking at Instagram stories and I saw a targeted ad and the Usually when you see an ad, you feel a little bit mad or violated because you're like, God, that freaking lamp. Like, why is that lamp following me around the internet? Or sometimes you're annoyed in a different way. You're like, oh, that lamp. I like already bought that lamp. Stop advertising to me. I bought the lamp. I don't want the lamp anymore. Um, Or, you know, sometimes it's because you feel like it's gotten you a little bit misfiled or maybe it knows something about you that you don't know yet. Like I saw one a couple weeks ago that said, finally, a great lipstick for the mature woman. (laughs) I was like, I don't. I thought... I, I got, thought so I got many things. Too, <laughs> I thought so many things like 
that I could just wear regular lipstick for the rest of my life. And also that maybe I'm not mature yet, but anyway, fine. I, you know, all of that, I was like, I trusted that the ad was right, you know, and that I guess I am a mature woman who maybe needs to look at my lipstick choices or something. But the other night I got an ad that said, if you're five, three and under meet your new go-to pair of jeans. And I was like offended that the algorithm didn't know I was tall. <laughs> like, like I was like, what? Like, come on, get, get yourself together, man. <laughs> like advertise tall jeans to me. And then I was like, well, this is quite something. Like I've now gotten to the place where I'm mad at the algorithm for not targeting my ads to right. me. <laughs> and I am truly a creature of the capitalism of the 20 teens. Um, and it got me thinking about this new California law, uh, the California Consumer Protection Act, which how many of you guys here know what GDPR is? <laughs> Clap if you do. <laughs> okay. You can call that a, like a smattering or a smattering plus. Um, okay, so in general, there are a new set of laws. The, the first big one that had impact was GDPR, which was the European Union law that put onerous restrictions on uh, the ability of companies to collect your data and sell it. Um, and when the European Union put this law into place, lots of multinational corporations, including many big American tech companies and many American digital publishers, had to do a lot of expensive work to comply and to make it harder to share data and buy it. Um, now California, my new home state, the regulator, the European Union of the United mm-hmm. States, um, the, the, uh, the state whose state regulations ends up regulating the rest of the company, is, uh, has passed a similar law which goes into effect uh, in January, and again, will make it harder for people to collect data and will mean that they have to delete it, all of which might make it harder for these ads to follow us around with accuracy and may actually give us privacy back, which is probably something we should want. But I just, uh, uh, the fact that this may change made me wonder how you guys feel. Like, do you feel violated by these ads? Do you notice them chasing you? Do you wish they'd go away? Do you think we need to go back to a different era? Like, how creeped out are you by lipstick for the mature woman? <laughs> Blonde Dana? I was going to say this could work well with your Moira costume idea. <laughs> <laughs> Look into that mature woman lipstick. Uh, I mean, when I started to read more broadly about the implications of the, of these, of the practices that these laws are seeking to curtail it started to creep me out because there's a real continuity between things like lipstick for the mature woman following you around and, you know, Facebook targeting political ads at you, right? The same algorithms that are figuring out, oh, this person might need tall jeans. Okay, they got that one wrong. But they're also trying to figure out things like, you know, what's your income level? Who did you vote for in the last election? Do you live in a blue district or a red district? And when you start to think of that sort of mass, uh, that huge degree of... um, manipulation of algorithms that's trying to read and surveil you at every moment, it's horrifying. I mean, at the consumer level for me, it doesn't bother me that much. The idea that, you know, people would know what I bought and that other advertisers would try to sell me similar things. Maybe I'm not interested in those things, but that doesn't seem like a level of surveillance that I find horrifying. But the fact is, that's just the tip of a huge iceberg that is really scary. Right. Well, the sort of central problem of the internet might be phrased this way, that it's a it's a mirror that purports to be a window, right? So people think that they're looking out upon the world when in fact what they're doing is getting a highly solipsistic reflection back to them. And um, uh, that's horrifying in the context of political advertising. Of course, we've seen it weaponized in a terrible way in the United States and to terrible effect, and we're just anticipating it happening all over again. 
I wonder if it's possible, Julia, to bracket that part of the discussion off a little bit, though, and really just talk about this as a, a privacy issue involving a purely capitalistic attempt to sell us more things better, right? I think that has to be, that aspect of it has to be regulated. Mark Zuckerberg has to find his inner statesman. The political aspect has to find his inner statesman and has to do the right thing and prevent uh, 2016 from being re- repeated ad infinitum in the United States and elsewhere stipulated. But the but the real question to me is, you know, you have an activated camera and microphone. You are agreeing to terms and conditions you never read. No human being reads through that microphone and that camera are trained on you and your voice and your Im- increasingly probably your image, where your eye is going, what your face looks like, um, in ways that are. They seem quite invasive, but Julia, I had the weirdest experience. The more I read, the less paranoid I was in a way because from a purely consumer business point of view, this is only actionable intelligence when it's massively – yes, it's micro – gathered, but it's aggregated and algorithmically distributed in such a way that they just then throw some ads back at you. And I, as much as I wanted to feel as though I was Winston Smith, the hero of some horrible dystopian drama in which my dignity was slowly being shorn from me like, you know, wool from a cheap, um, instead I sort of felt a kind of blasé. Is this how you feel all the time? (laughs) I was like, what's the big deal? So they know that I like... You know, Audis. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) very nice car. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, uh, my view on this is very colored by the economics of journalism, right? Right. So the economics of journalism is that you didn't used to be able to use a little pixel that travels around the internet and 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 cookies and all the rest of it to like identify individual consumers and then bundle everybody who's interested in that lamp or mature lipstick or short jeans and make sure that they all see the ad. It used to be editors' jobs to do that and publishers' jobs to do that. And we would make magazines for the mature woman or newspapers for people who live in the, you know, Southern California metro area or, um, you know, specific journalistic products, which, you know, one of the great debates in um, in any media company is like, who's the customer? And the ad side thinks the advertisers are the customer and the readers are the product and the editors think that the readers are the customer and the advertisers are just like the gas. Um, and anyway, so it used to be the journalists were the ones who aggregated affinity groups and then sold the attention of those affinity groups to the right. people who wanted to sell them stuff. And that like powered, you know, essentially all of media for much of the 21st century. And so one of the things that's made it so hard for journalism in the last, you know, since the rise of of digital advertising and, and digital publishing is that that relationship has been severed, right? You The classifieds can find you directly. You can go to cars.com. Um, and increasingly, like if you want to reach, you know, thoughtfluencers who might be Audi susceptible, you don't have to just think like, well, I bet those snobs who read The New Yorker and The Atlantic and Slate want Audis. You can just, um, look, I've become such a prole now that I'm a newspaper woman. Um, and, you know, you just can like literally find a cluster of people who've been, sure. you know, Googling Audi, Google image searching Audi and serve them the ads. And so it cuts out journalists as a middleman of peddling attention in a way that colors the way I think about it because, you know, the better actually that the pixels are at collecting your interest, the better the ad returns are against digital advertising and that can help 
save digital publications or, or increase digital revenues as print revenues fail. So like it is bad news for journal. I mean, it's probably good news for like the polity and all of us that these laws are going into effect and that, and that things are being regulated. But like when you look at the budget of your media outlet, you're like, whew, yeah, these regulations, they're very expensive to comply with. I'm not Facebook. I don't have the resources. You know, part, part of what the regulations ask you to do is um, you have to have the ability to delete the data that you have on any individual user if they ask you to. But what that sort of means you have to do is build a system whereby you can know it and you sort of know it in aggregate ahead of time, but you haven't, you definitely haven't built a thing that allows you to spy on any individual user. So it's, it's this funny backwards thing that I'm not sure I can see straight because yeah. I see it through the lens of the media business, but it is this weird thing where that the aggregation of the data does afford a certain type of privacy. And I think that's why I, I agree, 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 agree to like whatever on mm-hmm. my phone, right. try to turn off the location tracking where you can, cause that part creeps me out, but pixels, whatever. But you know, but we don't have an Alexa in our house, and that's mostly because my husband is more of a privacy nut than I am. But I, but I agree. Like it, it's sort of what gives you the skeeves qualitatively mm-hmm, right. in terms of what people might know about you. That that orb in your home, just eavesdropping right. on your particular conversation, feels so different than like, ah, eh, who cares if I looked at, you know, a lamp? And I, I don't know. I mean, that I think is also why people are so skeeved out by the idea that your phones might be listening to you. And we should stipulate that I'm pretty sure still all the big companies deny that they are eavesdropping us and using that to serve us ads. Although, how many people in this room think they have any experience where they've had an ad served oh to them based God. on something they've heard? <laughs> yeah, I, it can't it's not be true. I mean, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but it cannot, based on like 10 things I've seen, it cannot yeah. not be true. Well, what we were having dinner with someone in L.A., who said the story was crazy, that she was at work, she had nothing to eat, so she went to the microwave and had a hot pocket. Which she hadn't had in like 20 years. Yeah, had not eaten one in a long time, was talking to no one about it, not Googling it, just ate a hot pocket, (laughs) went back to work, and immediately got served an ad for a hot pocket. (laughs) What what were they doing? How were they spying on her? How did they know? Right, and I think, Julia, you've put your... (laughs) (laughs) It's a... I just wanted to say hot pocket as many times as possible. Um... You put your finger on a horrible dilemma, right? If you're trying to reverse engineer from the desired outcome, which is a thriving, healthy public sphere, on the one hand, you want well-monetized newspapers and magazines. You want journalists, you know, real journalists, to have access to a decent living, and you want these to be thriving institutions. In the age of uh, the Internet, how are they going to do it? It turns out that among the sites that... Uh, one tech journalist visited the New York Times and the Washington Post had the most tracking resources. Like some of the most intensive tracking is being done by the digital editions of these venerable newspapers. Why? It's not because they're trying to in any way, you know, intrinsically spy on you or or uh, rob you of your dignity. It's because they're just trying to survive. They're trying to find a way to monetize their product in the age of um, digital competition on the other hand, you know, you couldn't come up with a worse nightmare than um, targeted advertising, political advertising. So it's just an excruciating um, choice that uh, journalists have to make and editors have to make. I mean, I just think it's going to be interesting to watch how this regulation unfolds. So, so one of the responses to the California law is that all of the big tech companies are now lobbying for there to be federal privacy regulation that would have fewer teeth that sounds wrong, but it's correct. Fewer teeth, less teeth than the California law. And 
it seems unlikely that they're actually going to get that into place. But it, you know, it it does feel like we are entering an age where regulation of these big companies is going to happen, and the fights over how big it will be and where it will come from mm-hmm. um, will be fascinating to watch. But it did, it just did make me wonder if we're living in this age where where we are getting very used to a specific experience of being advertised to that's going to go completely away. And the other thing that I that I always think about digital ads is that. You know, advertisements are such fascinating pieces of culture. Like if you go back into archives and do archival research in old magazines, in addition to getting whatever article or front page you're looking to get, you also get these like incredible old ads, like just, just mesmerizing icons of like what life was like or what was the presumed demographic that wanted to get this pair of sunglasses or this sprinkler or whatever you you you, and then you feel like you learn so much about the psychographic of the magazine or the newspaper that you're reading because it's beautiful but in an era where the ads are served individually like you actually can't go back and see what the digital experience was of a piece of culture with that full you know the the history of consumerism and consumer marketing is going to be bereft during this period because these I don't know where these ads are getting tracked. Who will ever know that someone thought I was five yeah. three? <laughs> Got beamed in. Um, Wait, can I close out on just a, a goofy question? So Julia talked about some of hers, but what are some ridiculous things that you were perpetually marketed? Like, what's an ad that you keep on seeing that you have no idea why it's being served to you? Oh man, I wish I had a good answer. I can't think of something. I mean, I can answer for myself, which is that somehow Instagram has decided that I want to buy sort of like Ladyhawk cosplay (laughs) costumes. (laughs) So, and I think what may have happened is that once something like that appeared and I thought it was so weird that there was a site that even sold things that literally like cloaks and, you know, like (laughs) things that you would wear to have a hawk on your wrist and go tromping through the moors in some old movie. And I think once maybe I clicked on one just to see, like, what kind of site sells this stuff? And now Instagram really, really believes that I want to dress like some kind of Ren Fair lady with cloaks. I was going to say, and then three days later, that outfit showed up in the mail. <laughs> I do. Don't you feel like sometimes they have different personalities? Like, I can't tell if this is just because of the way I read media, but, like, sometimes you can tell how thirsty or desperate a thing is because you click on it once and it just, like, rapidly follows you to every box that ever appears before your eyes like you sort of feel like one might show up on the shiny side of your toaster because they're so hungry and I always assume what that means is that so few other people have googled that thing that the that the body of likely participants is incredibly small so this happens a lot with like Broadway theater like if you ever then this is also another one where it doesn't feel like they're that bright about it. So you like buy tickets to a show and they're like, show, 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 show. And it's like, I already, I, like, show me another show. Like, sure. Like, <laughs> like, you know, and then I feel like there's some that have a little bit more chill about it. And they like show up like once a week and they're like, Matt, we heard, have you heard about the molecule? Um, you know, air filter. It's <laughs> very interesting. But no, they're so, it's, it just makes you want to, oh, then also, I mean, Molecule got in trouble for targetedly advertising all of the people who are downwind of the big fires in California. Oh, dear. Um, and, and apparently Molecule, like, is not good at filtering out right. those pollutants. I also, there was a bad smell in El Segundo, where our newspaper is, the other day, and we're near some Chevron refineries, and I got... Two promoted ads on Twitter. This is all like a week after Twitter stops doing political advertising. One that was like Chevron sniff test. And it was like, we've got amazing machines that are out to sniff all the bad things. And if we ever sniff one, we stop that bad thing. (laughs) And then there's like another slide that was like, the pollutants have to be 
Um, if they get even as bad as the pollutants in perfume, we snuff them out like woo Chevron. I was like, what the hell is going on at the refinery? <laughs> and then meanwhile, I got that the next day in that same big Twitter slot, I got some other person fighting to be like, uh, it seemed like some, it seemed either like I didn't click through all the links to figure it out, but either it was an actual advocacy group fighting against the Chevrons of the world and telling me I should fight for clean air in LA. But there was something about the way that they were telling me that made me feel like they might have just also been Chevron, pretending to be some other group, <laughs> pretending to be anti-Chevron, but so that I would think Chevron was okay. And I was just like, what? Like, I, I guess I actually had a lot of thoughts about it that I haven't said out loud until now. But, you know, like, the, the, you have to think about, like, what... Okay, so that's geo-targeting. And also, the air has been bad because... I don't know, Los Angeles. I don't understand. I was like, is this what it was like when we had smog? And they're like, no, that was totally different. This is haze. And I was like, okay, never mind. I don't, I don't understand. Um, but I had talked about it and I'd also sniffed it. I was like, there's no part of my phone that can tell what I'm doing with my <laughs> nose, is there? <laughs> like, you just, you, it just makes you feel like you have this porous relationship with these entities fighting for your attention and they get some of it because look how much time I've spent thinking and talking <laughs> on a national news show about Chevron and it's potentially shady pollutant practices. Do you think we're in trouble with our Chevron sponsorship? <laughs> this show is brought to you by BP. How about the tagline, it'll kill you before you can smell it? <laughs> well, come to our, I don't know, what do we do? We have a Facebook page still? No, we have a Twitter feed. I think we've actually sort of quietly in our own way receded from all the platforms because you went <laughs> off Twitter, which Dana and I still like. And, and we've abandoned Facebook a, a bit and we're back to email. Well, you can email us and we'll tell you <laughs> some links for some of the stories that we discussed in this segment <laughs> on an extremely micro-targeted level. Uh, let's move on. This is the uh, moment in our podcast when we endorse... We do. And I have an endorsement that is specific to Canada. I wanted to endorse Canada? something Canadian. There's this funny little bit that I do. Oh. <laughs> I don't know if you've listened to this show before. If you've ever listened to my podcast. Dana, you're not but... allowed to recommend something until prompted. <laughs> I mean, I know no one finds it funny, but that's kind of part of the joke. And I go with it way too far. And I've clung to it for years and years and years. Go ahead. <laughs> Don't you have a leftover nah from LA still? <laughs> all right, all right, let's 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 crank up the old met machine here. <laughs> so you want to give me a little bit cut man, a little back massage. <laughs> Dana, Dana. It's time for you to endorse Dana. <laughs> That's no, just too, too weird. <laughs> go ahead and endorse. All right. So I was trying to go Canada-specific with my endorsement, and I was trying to think of who, who's a Canadian artist that I love and have loved for a long time. Uh, plenty of people could have fallen into that category, but the first person who sprung to mind, and I know I've endorsed her before in the show, was Katie Lang. Um, from the province of Alberta, I believe, right? She's from Alberta. Uh, so, yes, I've loved her since, you know, the, the early 90s. And yet, just yesterday, I found out about a Katie Lang song that I either never knew or had completely forgotten about because it has been mistreated by history. And that is the, uh, the James Bond theme sung by Katie Lang. Who knows about that out here? <laughs> I like that little clap. The same people from whom I heard the most pleasing 
appreciative intake of breath when you said Katie Lang's name. <laughs> just said, what <laughs> about this? <laughs> this is very exciting. No, exactly. This happened to come up on Twitter yesterday, just after we had landed in Vancouver, and it seemed like it was a sign that I had to endorse this song. So um, in Tomorrow Never Dies, the 1997 James Bond movie, it was the second Pierce Brosnan Bond. It's not a very highly regarded Bond movie. Um, it was the first time that John Barry, who had done almost all the music coordination, a lot of score um, score writing, but also just sort of gathering up the pop music that's used, you know, for the the new pop song for every Bond movie. John Barry had been the guy who ran that for years and years. And he wrote the Goldfinger theme, not the lyrics, I don't think, but the music. He wrote a lot of the famous themes. And, uh, and for some reason, contract reasons, negotiations, he didn't participate in this movie for the first time. And they got a new guy, David Arnold, to be the kind of music supervisor for this Bond movie. Uh, he had produced a record before that called Shaken and Stirred, which is actually really worth, worth listening to, too. That's, it's like an anthology of, of Bond theme covers. So he wrote a song for Katie Lang to sing. It's a fantastic song. It was initially called Tomorrow Never Dies. She recorded it. It was beautiful. And then for whatever reason, I have no idea why, the, the Broccoli's, right, the producers for years of the uh, James Bond movies, decided not to go with it for the main theme. They tacked it ignominiously on the end credits of the movie, and they had Sheryl Crow write and produce and sing the song that became the top credit theme for the Bond movie. And it's a Sheryl Crow song that sort of sunk into obscurity, right? Does anybody remember that Sheryl Crow did a Bond song? No, because it wasn't a great song. And they even gave it the title, Tomorrow Never Dies, and took it away from Katie's song, which was then retitled Surrender and played under the, the closing credits. But the Katie Lang song is one of the great, it would be one, anthologized as one of the great Bond themes if people only knew about it. It's got that kind of Shirley Bassey, like big, brassy, roaring sound. And it's called Surrender. And if you listen to the lyrics, it's almost as if it's from the point of view of the villain. I don't know who the villain was in Tomorrow Never Dies if I ever saw that movie. But it's a song that's sung by someone who's trying to manipulate and kind of, you know, cruelly tease someone else, which you can imagine Katie Lang completely kills that mood. She's fantastic. Um, so, yeah, Tomorrow Never Dies is not the title of the song. It's called Surrender. You can find it on YouTube. And I really think that you're going to put it, if you like Katie Lang, you're going to put it right on your playlist. So. That's my endorsement. Was that the one in which Charlie Sheen's ex played someone named either Tuesday or Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> you remember it way better than I do. I don't think she was the villain, though. I think I'm right. Uh, all right, Julia, what do you have? All right. So my endorsement this week is not about the border with the United States that we are very close to, but about a different border, the border between the United States and Mexico. Uh, and I'm endorsing it because it is a different kind of mob gang epic. It is Don Winslow's The Power of the Dog, which is the first book in his... Um, oh, God, there's, there's a lot of appreciative whispering yeah. for the endorsements. You guys are like a very good appreciative whisper crowd. And it is, it's, so it's the first book in the Cartel Trilogy, which is just, I, I'm only halfway into the first book, so possibly it turns terrible, in which case I've misled you all and I'm sorry. But so far, it's just one of those books that is so confident in this massive world that it is building in which all of the characters have a thousand motives and are very complexly and acutely drawn. And um, 
and the book just expects you to keep up. Like it just keeps plopping you in another situation. And oh, here you are with some kids in New York. And here you are with this couple. And here you are in this town. And here you are a decade later. And you kind of feel like your mental energy is you're swimming to keep up. But you can tell that this world is being built in which great things are going to be conjured. And, you know, and it's also sort of like a, a, a thriller that's nice to read at bedtime that's not, um, I like a little plot momentum in my bedtime reading. So it's just a really interesting mix of, complexity and thought-provoking writing and just a good old pot boiler. So The Power of the Dog by Don Winslow. I'm halfway through it. I'll report back when I get to the end of it slash the other two, which I have a feeling I'm headed headlong toward a little bit like Steve Metcalf locked in a room with Schitt's Creek. <laughs> so um, uh, Faith, who wonderfully keeps us uh, in line on our podcast jaunts said to me before the show she was like let's keep it to one endorsement tonight <laughs> so i got it down to two <laughs> all right well i have a very simple rule uh, which is when in canada endorse ga cohen nothing you know we <laughs> could just get fake like a sharp and take a breath for ga cohen he's a can- canadian uh, political philosopher uh and i um Oh, God. This is going so badly. Uh, And he wrote this essay called Incentives, Inequality, and Community. (laughs) But what I love about it is it's thematic tie into Schitt's Creek. (laughs) Because it takes on the idea that the, um, you know, this, this, I think, very corrosive and Clearly, Cohen thinks very corrosive idea that the most talented need super high monetary incentives to keep doing what they're doing, right? Which is this argument that if you tax me, I will work less hard. These supposedly super talented people are like, I'm going to withhold my labor and its beautiful social product um, if you if raise my taxes, right? Cohen goes after this so surgically, so beautifully, with such incredible elan and humor um, and philosophical rigor that there's just nothing left of it by the end of the essay. Um, and he, just to give you a very quick sense of it, he takes this one. He, the point that he's making is that there, that you can begin with something like that sounds ex- exactly like a neutral and universal precept, and then radically change its meaning depending on who's speaking. Like, who's actually saying these words, right? And then all of a sudden you hear how preposterous they they are. And he takes the example of a kidnapper, right? The kidnapper doesn't get to cite this, what we would say is probably a universal maxim, which is children ought to be with their parents, right? Or shouldn't be separated from their parents when demanding ransom money, right? The kidnapper doesn't get to say, oh, this universal, neutral, totally, you know, morally universal precept, it doesn't matter who is saying it, it's totally neutral, um, is true no matter who says it and where they say it. Children ought to be with their parents. Therefore, give me the money. Doesn't hold. And he (laughs) takes this and he uses it as a way of saying that what rich people are saying when they say this is really analogous to what the, um, is really analogous to what the kidnapper is saying. It's just an amazing, amazing essay. Um, and then the song Camera Shy by the Lucksmiths. And that's our show. <laughs> You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today. That's on our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. 
every time I'm going to keep saying it, uh, as long as we do this show, the emails that we get are just wonderful. It gives us a sense of who's listening. Uh, and that is heartening to the core. Uh, we also have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Rachel Allen. Thank you, thank you again to Faith Smith, who made all of this possible, and Britt Pulley, uh, who helped as well enormously, uh, and to the Granville Island stage. You've been a wonderful host for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much, so much for joining us. We will see you soon.